To binge all episodes of The Killing Month, August 1978, join Wondery Plus and enjoy ad-free listening to over 40,000 episodes, early access to your favorite podcasts, and more. Find Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This episode contains adult language and descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. Well, my name was James Griffin, actually James Disco Griff. I used to dance like John Travolta. That's how I got the name Disco. Disco Griff. Disco was what James used to be called back when he was dating a woman named Jean. He affectionately called her Jeannie, and he was really trying to impress her. I was taking dance lessons on City Line Avenue in Philadelphia because she liked to dance. I took her a rose a day for 30 days, and she said, okay, okay, I'll go out with you. These days, James doesn't dance anymore on account of a bad knee, and he doesn't go by disco anymore. But that's not the only part of his name that's changed. He got a new name in late 1978 when he entered the Federal Witness Protection Program as a witness against the Johnston brothers. We'll use his original name for this podcast and keep his location confidential. James Griffin had been running with the Johnston gang for many years, by the time August 1978 rolled around, the month the gang started eliminating witnesses that were scheduled to testify against them in front of a federal grand jury. Among those witnesses were three younger members of the gang, often referred to as the Kitty Gang. One by one, they were marched up a hill in a remote rural area, shot in the head, and buried in a mass grave. One of the victims was the stepson of the gang leader, Bruce Johnston Sr. James Griffin says he knew something was going to happen that day. After all, he says he helped the Johnstons buy lime and shovels that day in mid-August when the Kitty Gang disappeared. I asked James if he knew what he was doing when he bought those supplies. I kind of had a hunch but I didn't, I didn't want to get involved. But it became clear to James what the Johnstons' plan was when they said, Hey, Disco, you want to make two grand? I said, how? And they said, ah, we got to dig some holes tonight. And I said, no, man, no, I can't do that because I'm going to Philly tonight. I'm taking dance lessons. So they, they call me some choice words, but I said, no, I'm not available. I would much rather go take dance lessons than dig graves any day. After he said no to digging the hole where the kitty gang would eventually be buried, James remembers driving by the site of the mass grave and the Johnstons alluding to what happened that night. They would say, hey, 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 Disco, your buddies are up on the hill there. Why don't you go see them? James says he didn't participate in the murders, but he would soon realize 
he knew way too much about what happened in August 1978. In this episode, James Disco Griffin's life, entangled in the gang's criminal web, his bizarre journey to try to get out, and the unlikely bond he formed with a member of the team trying to put the Johnstons away. I'm Amanda Lamb. From WREL Studios, this is The Killing Month, August 1978. The story of a family crime empire that came crumbling down when the bodies started piling up. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Like so many of the people who worked with the Johnston gang, the relationships went way back to when they were teenagers. James grew up in western Pennsylvania. His dad had kicked him out of his family's home at age 15, and James ended up in Kennett Square, living with friends he met at work. And it didn't take long for him to connect with the Johnstons. I'll tell you what, I met Bruce Johnson before I had a driver's license because I used to walk his girlfriend to work in the evenings in Kennett Square. I was kind of naive as to what kind of people they really were. I know that they were not afraid to run their mouth. They talked about everything. They bragged about everything. We used to go steal tires off of the Chevrolet dealers. And then at some point, we started stealing John Deere tractors and snowmobiles. And then I started getting a little bit of cash build up. It became a way of life. Go out two, three nights a week. And at that time, antifreeze was a big seller. I mean, it was seven, eight dollars a gallon. And you may not think that's much, but if you steal a hundred gallon, that's a lot of money. We actually stole meat from a supermarket. We stole everything. At the time, James didn't think too much about his lifestyle being dangerous or wrong. I mean, when you're 16 years old and you make Three or four thousand dollars a month, extra money, cash. That that's that's quite appealing, you know. But then again, when you get sent to prison at 17 years old, that's also made a statement to me. James was put away for burglary and driving a stolen Corvette. I know from being in jail two and a half years, I'd rather die than go back to prison. Believe me. And then when I got out, I guess I was okay for the gang because I didn't squeal on anybody. I didn't do anything wrong. I did my time and got out. James thinks that doing his time and not snitching on anyone while he was behind bars, it gave him good standing with the Johnstons and the other gang members. And when he finally got out, he went right back to what he knew, stealing. He continued to pull jobs with the Johnstons well into his 20s. But 
he wasn't a big fan of Bruce Sr. I mean, he was a cigar-smoking, arrogant, little sawed-off man. He wasn't as tough as everybody thinks he was. Bruce was a little punk, so to speak. He had money that he would pay other people to do his dirty work, you know, because he didn't have the balls to do it. I'm not afraid of Bruce whatsoever. Dave, that's a different story. The real killer in the gang was Dave. But he was my best friend at, at the time. Dave was my friend, and Dave used to tell me, you know, you know, Disco, if you rat on us, I'm, I'm going to have to kill you. So we're going to say best friend in air quotes here, because it's hard to believe you'd be best friends with someone that you were afraid of. But just like everything else when it came to the Johnstons, it was complicated. Eventually, these strange interactions with his best friend, David or Dave Johnston, who might eventually kill him, started to take their toll on James. Even though this was the only life he had ever known, he started to wonder whether or not the gang really had his back if things went bad. During one home invasion, James remembers how the gang watched as the people who lived there drove into their garage. The Johnstons followed them in. James says he was standing watch for the cops outside the garage and could hear the Johnstons screaming at the people and threatening to blow their brains out. I do remember many times, like, standing out in the middle of the night, cold, getting ready to do a burglary or steal some trucks or cars, I'd look up at the sky and I'd say, how the hell am I going to ever get out of this? But it was the murders of August 1978 that became the real turning point for James. His efforts to escape gang life turned his life upside down, and it would take help from those he used to run from to turn things back around. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When you get involved with people like that, they don't forget. And... I just, uh, you know, nowadays, 45 years later, I'm still, I'm cautious, that's all. I have, I have guns. <laughs> James Griffin was deep in with the Johnston gang in the summer of 1978. The gang stole farm equipment, antiques, cars, anything they could resell. They figured out how to quickly crack safes in almost any business, walking away with tens of thousands of dollars. And David Johnston was rumored to have stolen, among other things, 200 Corvettes. 200. In the summer of 1978, 
the FBI had been running an intense surveillance operation on the Johnston gang. The idea behind the surveillance team was that officers would be in a position to witness the crimes the Johnstons were committing themselves. They would then testify against the Johnstons in court. This way, there would be no civilian witnesses for the gang to intimidate. And the whole time this cat and mouse game was going on, the gang knew they were being followed by the FBI. James Griffin remembers it well. When you go out at night, you go out and you hear this airplane, little airplane humming all the time. Yep, that's right. The FBI spied on the gang from an airplane. Go back inside, come out a couple hours later, the airplane's still there. While interviewing people about this story, one person told us that David Johnston once tried to shoot down the FBI plane tracking the gang with a deer rifle. Others said this did not actually happen. But the idea that it could have happened, the idea that it was totally believable that one of the brothers would be so bold as to actually try to shoot down a plane with a rifle, well, that's the kind of lore that surrounded the Johnstons, that they were almost superhuman, capable of anything. And that surveillance, it worked but not the way investigators had hoped it would. The Johnstons flipped the script. They tracked the FBI agents who were tracking them. They figured out what cars likely belonged to the agents and learned their surveillance schedules. And James remembers when he and the other gang members would have to lay low at times and take a break from their criminal activities. And the FBI, well, As it turned out, investigators didn't have the evidence needed to make a strong case against the gang. So, in the summer of 1978, after so much effort tailing the bad guys, the FBI surveillance team was permanently disbanded just before August, the month of the ambush and the kitty gang murders. In mid-August, James helped the brothers buy the lime to conceal the scent of decaying bodies and the shovels to dig the graves of the three members of the Kitty Gang. But he says he didn't dig and he didn't participate in killing the kids. And James really didn't want to know what had gone down that night or any other night in August for that matter if it involved the Johnstons. But shortly after the ambush on August 30th, after Robin Miller was killed and Bruce Johnston Jr. was wounded, James got an earful from the brothers. We went out one night in my Lincoln town car. Me, there was me, Dave was in the front seat with me, Norm was behind Dave and Bruce was behind me. So we went up to Quarryville or Lancaster up there. We were going to do a burglary and it didn't pan out. So we were on our way home about 1.30 in the morning. James says the brothers started bickering with each other about the botched ambush and about how Junior was supposed to be dead. Dave got to talking and Dave said to Bruce, he said, by the way, where the fuck's the rest of my money? Our money. And, and Bruce said, 
well, you didn't even kill the little son of a bitch. Why should I pay you? And they said, well, if we can find out what room he's in in the hospital, they said, we'll finish it. And Bruce said, oh, I don't think we should be talking like this around disco. He had a shotgun on him and he put the shotgun to the back of my head and he said, disco, you would never say nothing, would you? And I was in my big town car and I floored it on US-1. And I said, Bruce, if you don't take that shotgun out of the back of my head, there ain't none of us gonna be living anymore. And then he laughed and he took the gun out of my head. And he said, we'll talk about this later. This would be a very important conversation that James heard regarding David and Norman and the ambush. Senior also had another conversation in front of James that implied he was responsible for Gary Crouch's death. And the brothers talked openly in Disco's presence about James Sampson being killed and left in the landfill. Bottom line, Disco knew way too much. Listen, I realized, you know, the only loyalty to them was each other. Bruce, Norman, Dave were loyal to each other, nobody else. I'm an outsider. So in a weird way, in a really weird way, they were a family. They had each other's backs. They just didn't have anyone else's. They wouldn't turn on each other, but I'll tell you one thing. They, uh, they would turn on anybody else in a heartbeat. In early fall 1978, word on the street was that people might be getting ready to talk about the Johnstons, and that investigators were getting search warrants to build their case against the gang. James knew if he wanted to stay alive, he had to get away from the Johnstons. And it was during this time that James got an invitation to meet with his best friend, David Johnston. And as you can imagine, given the circumstances, that invitation didn't sit quite right with him. Mrs. Johnson called me and said, hey, Dave wants you to meet them down on the road. They need you to help them do something. They want you to meet him in Chad's Ford. James knew that Chad's Ford was right near the Brandywine Game Preserve, where they had asked him to dig the hole. After gathering bits and pieces of information from the brothers' banter, he had also figured out this was where the missing members of the Kitty Gang had likely ended up. He wanted nothing to do with this place or this ominous meeting. When I left my house in Kennett Square, I went out the window because Mrs. Johnson was sitting in my parking lot. I went out the window and I took a train to my sister's house. I'd live with her for probably a week or two. And see, Jean, she actually thought I was dead too because I didn't contact her. And so everybody thought I was dead for a week or two. Eventually, James reached out to Jean from hundreds of miles away to let her know he was alive. She then told investigators where he was. James didn't see this as a betrayal because he knew that Jean, when confronted, wasn't the kind of person to lie to investigators. And he was glad she told the truth. He was tired of running and was ready to come clean 
Investigators had arrest warrants for James, charging him with robbery, burglary, and conspiracy to kill the members of the Kitty Gang. He was working in a restaurant out of state at the time. They arrested him there, and he sat in the county jail until plans were made to return him to Pennsylvania. Upon his return, James told investigators he wouldn't cop to crimes that he didn't commit, and he didn't want to end up dead at the hands of the people they wanted him to rat out. He said coming back was the only way to prove himself innocent of murder. But James did cop to being a thief. James estimates he was involved with stealing at least 150 tractors with the gang. Everybody thought they're just hillbillies, but they weren't just hillbillies. They were very, very organized. That's former FBI agent Dave Richter, who led the surveillance efforts on the Johnston gang members, including James Griffin. Throughout the FBI's surveillance operation, the members of the Johnston gang didn't necessarily stand out as individuals to Dave. And James Griffin had just been one more person in that group of outlaws wreaking havoc on Chester County with what appeared to be reckless abandon. When I first met him, he wouldn't put me in jail for 10 years, right off the bat, before he even knew what anything about James Griffin. <laughs> that was in the fall of 1978, when James was in custody back in Pennsylvania. Little did James or Dave know they'd go from adversaries to playing for the same team. If I wanted to make my life better, I had to trust Dave Richter. It didn't happen right away, of course. Over many weeks, Dave Richter and other investigators talked with James, trying to reach a deal that would make James say okay to telling them what he knew about the Johnstons. And with all that back and forth, they started to get to know each other. Remember, James was still only in his mid-20s, and a lot had already happened in his life. James told Dave about getting kicked out of his house and fending for himself as a teenager. And through these conversations, James just had a gut feeling that Dave was a straight shooter, a good guy. James, you might remember this. We told you the thing was coming apart. You need to get a lawyer, make a deal, because this thing is going to blow up. And you told me after that that you trusted me and believed that I was being fair and honest. If you remember that, you may not. But do you have any recollection of that? My, uh, uh, slightly, but you know what? My trust at that time was very slim in people. The thing that made me cooperate was I didn't want to get killed by them people. And I didn't want to go to jail with them for the rest of my life because they'd kill me in there anyhow. So I said, you know what? I didn't do any murders. I'm not going to jail for murder. So have at it. So James's lawyer was trying to work out a deal where James would get a clean slate and witness protection in return for his testimony against the Johnstons. I guess they looked at my record and saw I was in jail a young, as a young kid, and they said, well, maybe we should give him a chance. While James's deal was being worked out, he was sitting in the local jail with some unsavory fellow inmates. 
they had me in with Dave and Bruce and Norman after they got arrested. And I was afraid, and I used to see, I was across the hall from them. James said in that short time that they were incarcerated together, the Johnstons would make shooting motions with their fingers whenever they crossed paths with him in the facility. He grew increasingly nervous. And then I brought it to the attention of the officials that when you come into the Chester County Farmers Prison, there's about a six-inch opening between the bars and the floor. So if Dave and Norm was out there on a visit, somebody could throw them a gun underneath there, and it would be short makings of James Griffin. In December 1978, James decided, with his life in danger, it was time to seal the deal with prosecutors. But there was a hitch. They said, you know, we want to put you in the witness protection program, but you got to be, you can't go in there with your girlfriend. James wouldn't go anywhere without Jean. And at that time, only married couples could enter the program together. So they said, we're going to get you married tonight. Prosecutor Dolores Troiani knew everything had to happen fast in order to ensure the deal with James. Remember, there's a little impediment to this because in those days, you had to have a blood test and you had to have a marriage license. You know, you couldn't just like get married that afternoon. Or could they? Someone from the DA's office called the local hospital about the blood test and pulled a few strings to get the marriage license in record time. And he had to have a judge. Dolores interrupted a jury trial and asked Chester County Judge Rob Gothrop to perform the ceremony. I went home and I got a dress that my grandmother had made. My grandmother was an excellent seamstress. And Dave Richter got them flowers. And somebody brought champagne. And not only did Judge Gothrop marry the couple, but he sang at the nuptials. Together, the investigators made sure James and Jeannie had a fitting celebration, despite the very strange circumstances. And James and Jeannie could now enter the Witness Protection Program together. You know what I remember about that day? The most of everything that I remember is that she gave up her life to, to be with me. And that, that, that touched my heart. That, that, that really touched my heart. I mean, because she could have said, no, I'm walking away. I mean, here I am in a, surrounded by cops and judges and lawyers, and, and she, she chose to go with me. That week, I spoke to James, was right around the 20th anniversary of Jeannie's passing from cancer. It was really emotional for him, even now. Jeannie wasn't just the love of his life. She was the woman who gave up everything for him at a time when many other women would probably have run. She was his rock. We'll hear more in a later episode about how life ended up for the man once called James Disco Griff. But during this time, starting in December 1978, 
when James and Jeannie had just entered witness protection and were beginning their new life, James was still tangled up in his old one because he had another hurdle to face before he could taste freedom forever. He still had to confront the Johnstons in a courtroom. The first time that I faced them in court was probably the hardest because I I didn't want to do what I had to do, but I had to do it for James. In court, James says the Johnstons were making all kinds of motions again, pretending to shoot him in the head. But after the first time, no problem. After the first time, I wasn't intimidated by them anymore. It got easier after the first time. There would be many times between the preliminary hearings and the trials themselves that James would need to face the Johnstons in court. And through it all, there was one person, besides Jeannie, of course, who was a constant for him, FBI agent Dave Richter. We got to know each other a little bit. And uh, if I had any issues, like when my little brother died, I called him and talked to him about that. And, you know, I just, he, he became... Basically, he was the only friend I had at the time. Yeah, because, I mean, witness protection is probably pretty lonely, I would imagine. You can't imagine. Dave Richter wasn't just a friend for James during the investigations and the trials of the Johnston brothers. They stayed friends long after that. In fact, they still call each other friends today and get together with each other and their families when they find themselves in the same town. Dave actually introduced us to James for this podcast, and we're glad he did. Because James's story, the story from the inside of the gang, is an important one, and it was also important in the courtroom. James and the other snitches and more than 150 other witnesses for the prosecution would testify at the trials of the Johnstons in 1980, along with dozens of witnesses for the defense. Trials that were riddled with danger, betrayal, and fear. We had had enough experience with this group of killers. You know, there were no boundaries. They would do anything. That's next time. I'm Amanda Lamb, and this is The Killing Month, August 1978. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.